7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with, his, with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing him with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what that kind of woman this is who was touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher replied, speak. A certain creditor has two debtors who owed 500 denali and the other 50. When, he, when they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is given loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say something among themselves. Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of our Lord. Well, this morning is the first Sunday of the season of Lent, seven weeks leading up to Easter. And uh, we're beginning a new sermon series today for this, uh, for this season of Lent. And we're going to be looking at, um, we'll, we'll be entirely in the Gospel of Luke. I don't know why my thing isn't working here. Um, we are going to be looking at uh, the seven meal stories in the Gospel of Luke around this theme of breaking bread. There may be nine meal stories, depending on what you count as a meal. Um, so I would encourage you to read the Gospel of Luke and try to identify what are all the meal stories in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is breaking bread with people. We're going to be looking at the seven primary stories um, in, in, this, uh, in this Gospel. I want to remind you of just how important breaking bread is in our lives. Almost every major event that takes place in our lives happens around breaking bread. So uh, when, I was, when I was a kid, you know, we were pretty busy during the week, but my parents would always make a point to have dinner together as a family on Sunday night. Every single holiday that uh, we would have, we'd get together with extended family, and of course, it was always around a meal. When, when Devin and I first started dating, our very first date was a quadruple date at this restaurant, uh, Julian's Authentic Mexican Food Cafe in uh, Santa Barbara, California. It's still there. What a gem, isn't it? 
Um, and uh, when we got married, um, after our wedding uh, ceremony, we celebrated, of course, with a, big, with a big meal. How do you celebrate the victories that you have in your life, whether it's a sports team or in family or in your job or graduating from college? You celebrate with food. When Devin and I get together with friends, we usually want to eat with them. Breaking bread is a really important part of our lives, and it's not just the nutritional value that's important. It's, it's the way that we connect with each other. So the word companion comes from the Latin word companere, which means to break bread with someone. Did you know that? Companion means to break bread with someone. So we are companions by virtue of breaking bread. And when we look at Jesus and we look at the Gospels, we notice that Jesus does a lot of eating. It seems that he's always either on his way to a meal, in the middle of a meal, or on his way from a meal. Um, and uh, and, and he, so he eats a lot. And this is one of the most important things and seems in his ministry. Some of the most important things that happen in his life happen when he's at a meal. His critics, of course, uh, the religious leaders, they fasted twice a week. And we know that Jesus fasted as well, but he didn't necessarily have that same pattern that they did. But they were upset with Jesus because he was always eating with the wrong people or eating on the wrong day or eating in the wrong place. And so this was the criticism that the Pharisees uh, leveled against Jesus in Luke chapter 7. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Just like Garth Brooks, Jesus had friends in low places. And so today we're, we're going to begin our Lenten series focused on these seven meal stories in this gospel. And we're going to be asking in each one of them, where do we find ourselves at the table? Which of the characters best represents our experience, who we are? And, and what do we learn about Jesus who we seek to follow from these meal stories? And our story today is an awkward story at best. Um, a very, very uncomfortable dinner gathering. And, and uh, in the middle of this dinner, Jesus tells a, a little parable. So there's a parable inside a narrative story that takes place at the home of Simon the Pharisee. There are three primary characters in the story. There's Simon the Pharisee, there's the sinful woman, as Luke described her, and there's Jesus. There's also the other guests. They're sort of background characters in the story, observers, but these are the three primary characters, Jesus, the sinful woman, and Simon the Pharisee. We're going to explore each of these and see where do we find ourselves at the table. So first, let's start with Simon the Pharisee. Pharisees were a popular religious sect in the first century, kind of like how the Roman Catholic Church has various orders. So they have the Franciscans and the Jesuits and, and uh, the Benedictines. Well, in, in the first century in Judaism, there were sects or orders within that religion, and the Pharisees were one of those. Um, they were teachers of the law. They were experts in the law of Moses. They were highly respected for their deep devotion to God. 
They studied the scriptures and many of them were rabbis in local synagogues or they were itinerant preachers and teachers. Um, and, uh, and they were known for the seriousness for which they took their faith, their religion. They wanted to be who God wanted them to be. And to them, they understood that to mean being obedient to the law as much as possible, to avoid um, violating the law of Moses at all costs. And so they'd take one of the Ten Commandments, let's say honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and then they would attach like another couple dozen rules on top of that um, to apply it to their lives. So keep the Sabbath day and make it holy. Well, what does that mean? It means you can go here and you can't go here. You can do this on, on the Sabbath day and you can't do that. You can walk this far, but you can't walk that far. And this is kind of how they lived their lives. They were constantly looking to see how do we make sure we don't violate the law. In some ways, their hearts were in the right place, right? Because they wanted to do God's will. And they were drawn to Jesus because Jesus was also a respected itinerant preacher and teacher. Jesus was also calling people to a life deeply devoted to God. And so they were interested in him. They wanted to have conversations with him. They wanted to talk about the scriptures and debate with him. And we find three times in the Gospel of Luke, Pharisees inviting Jesus to come to their home for dinner. And so of the seven meal stories, that we're looking at during this season of Lent, three of them take place in the home of one of these Pharisees, these people who were critics of Jesus, who were opposed to him. So the word Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word parushi, and it means one who is separated or set apart. And so these were people who saw themselves as being set apart in order to um, preserve their holiness. Well, what did they need to be set apart from in their own minds? Well, they needed to be set apart from sin and from people who were sort of deemed sinners in society. They needed to set themselves apart from anything that might cause them to violate the law. Um, and they wanted to call people to a deeper obedience to God. Now, as we look at the Pharisees, part of what we find after the time of Jesus is after his death and after his resurrection is that some of them were really drawn to following his teachings and some of them even became his disciples. So you probably remember a well-known Pharisee by the name of Saul of Tarsus who became known as the Apostle Paul after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Pharisees were drawn to Jesus but in his lifetime, some of them were repelled by him. They were frustrated because he interpreted the law differently. He practiced the law differently. All of their rules, Jesus seemed to turn on their head because Jesus valued people above the law. And it sort of appeared that the Pharisees valued the law over people. It's so it seemed, at least when the two were in conflict with one another. And so Jesus is constantly ministering with people who were considered sinful, ministering with these people. Un and, and this unsettled the Pharisees very much because they thought that to be pious meant to separate yourself from these kinds of, of people. And Jesus was always hanging around them, these sinners, publicly. Now Simon knows this about Jesus 
Yet he's interested in Jesus, and so he invites Jesus over for dinner with him and some of his friends. Presumably, this is sort of an elite group of religious leaders gathering in Simon's home. And Jesus, as a respected itinerant rabbi, is invited to participate in this conversation. Um, But right from the beginning, Simon starts to snub Jesus when he comes in the door. The first thing that happens, he walks in, and what's supposed to happen, it was customary that when you invite someone over for dinner, you greet them at the, at the front with a, with a kiss on the left cheek and on the right cheek. It's just a proper greeting in the first century. It's a way of saying, welcome, you're my friend. And Jesus didn't get a kiss, no kiss. What did that say? It said, I want to have you over for dinner. I want to have some conversation with you, but I'm not sure I really want to be your friend yet. I'm not, I'm not so sure about you yet. And then what you would usually do is you would provide a basin of water and a towel for that guest to come and wash their own feet. If you Um, were a person of wealth, if you had means, you might have servants around the dinner guest's table who would come around with a basin of water and wash your feet for you. There's no basin of water provided for Jesus um, when when he comes in. Now the guests, they would recline around a table leaning on usually their left elbow, and their feet would be up behind them on this cushion about waist level from the ground. And so you might have two people kind of facing each other on their left elbows, and it would go around the table in pairs like this, and this is how they would recline around a table in the first century. Um, and, uh, And so it's just common courtesy to provide an opportunity to wash your feet um, before dinner, right? So that, you know, it's sort of pleasant at dinner with the feet on these cushions uh, around the dinner table. They wore sandals in those days, and they walked around on dirt roads, and so their feet were caked with dirt and all of this. And uh, it was just polite manners to allow someone to clean themselves before dinner. I don't know if any of you have ever had smelly feet before, um, uh, uh, last weekend, I had uh, three junior high boys who took off their soccer cleats in the back of my car, and uh, I had to have the window down the entire drive back. It, it is, it's not a pleasant experience. Well, Jesus didn't get his feet clean. Um, back then, people were also provided with a little bit of scented oil to sort of you know, brighten up the, the, the smell because people would perspire throughout the day. Um, when I was in high school, I had a friend who would carry around a little bottle of Old Spice and he would put it on himself and he would say, instant shower, instant shower. Some of you might carry a stick of deodorant if you go exercise in the middle of the day. Well, this is what they would do, but they would do it with, with scented oils and they would give it to him so they might... Um, might feel a little bit better when they have dinner. None of this was provided for Jesus. All of it was a way for Simon to make Jesus feel just a little bit beneath him, just a little bit inferior. You're not quite good enough, but I'm gonna have you here anyway. What does that tell you about Simon? It says something about his heart, doesn't it? It says that, uh, you know, that he kinda sees himself as above Jesus. Sometimes we can do that with other people. We can make people feel like they're really important. And we can make people feel like they are more important than we are. Or we can make it clear that they're just a little bit beneath us. That's Simon. And what do we call that? 
We call that pride. We call that pride. In church tradition, pride is one of the seven deadly sins. And in church tradition, pride is the worst of the seven deadly sins because it burrows in our hearts and you can't see it when it creeps up um, and it kind of takes over. And this is what Simon seems to be dealing with. And now into this setting, so that's Simon, into this setting comes a person barges into this house, a person who happens to be a woman, a woman who happens to be known as a city woman, whatever that might mean. Probably means that she was perceived as being morally loose. She's one of those city girls, right? And Luke is careful to mention that she was a sinner, a woman from the city who was a sinner, Um, which is interesting because aren't we all? Uh, But for whatever reason, this was her reputation. This was how she is known. Most readers have assumed, church tradition has assumed, that her sin was prostitution or or adultery, some kind of sexual sin. But we shouldn't assume that that's the only kind of sin a first century woman is capable of. Uh, She could have been a thief. She could have been an addict. The type of sin is not mentioned. And that's because it's not the point. The point is that her name is now Sinner. This is how she is known. We don't even have her name in the, in the Bible. We don't know anything about her. We don't know how she knew about Jesus or what she knew of Jesus. All we know is that she heard that Jesus was there at Simon's house and her sense of need was so strong that she was willing to break some major cultural barriers in order to experience his grace, his mercy, and his love. And so she barges into Simon's house uninvited, and she brings an alabaster jar of ointment. Luke's point in telling us that the jar was made of alabaster is the first century way of saying that this was an extremely expensive bottle of perfume. It likely was a year's worth of wages for a middle-class person. And, uh, and she brings this in, this woman from the city known as a sinner. The economic value of this was such that it was a, a massive sacrifice, a wasteful thing. She, it could have been easily all that she had. And she sees Jesus, and she goes and stands behind him. Remember, his feet are behind him because he's leaning on his elbow, reclining at this table. So she finds her proper place in her mind behind him where she can't see his face and he can't see her face. That was her way of saying, Jesus, you're above me. I'm beneath you. So whereas Simon says, Jesus, you're beneath me. I'm above you. Here she is saying, you're above me. I'm beneath you and she tends um, near his feet and this reckless careless undefended unprotected weeping begins to happen at his feet and as she starts weeping as Jesus was reclining uh, crocodile tears start coming down her face and she gathers up these big old tears and she starts to wipe his feet right because they were dirty because the host did not provide what the host was supposed to provide for him so she starts to like clean his feet now I can't imagine that being a very effective way of cleaning someone's feet a handful of tears all that's going to do is wipe some mud around on the feet but the cleanliness wasn't the 
point. The point was this expression of need, this expression of total abandon, this expression of love for him. Um, And maybe remorse and desire and hunger. And if that's not enough, then she lets down her hair, or maybe she came in with her hair let down. In either case, these were not polite, um, modest manners for Simon's house. Way too risque for her to have her hair down. And so she dries her tears, smeared on Jesus' feet with the dirt, all wet and kind of muddy. She dries his feet with her hair, which means that she makes her hair pretty dirty. Um, And then she smothers him even more with the scented oil uh, on his feet from the alabaster jar. And as this is happening, we begin to see something else about Simon. The other guests at the table, you know, they might have felt a little awkward by this situation. Um, it's broken every cultural barrier, and awkward is, is, uh, is an understatement. But Simon would have been the most nervous about the whole thing. In his anxiety or in his frustration, he says something, not to everyone else, um, not even out loud, but only to himself. When the Pharisee who had invited him and when invited Jesus, he saw what this woman is doing, how Jesus is allowing it to happen. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. The fascinating thing about this is that Jesus responds to this, and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, remember, Simon didn't say anything out loud. He said it to himself. Luke's point in saying that was that either he didn't say it at all, or he said it in such a quiet whisper that it was inaudible. And Luke wants us to to recognize this. Have you ever been in a situation or in a room where nobody has to say anything and you can feel the tension in the room? You can feel the hostility. It's sort of thick and, and, and uh, you know, you kind of wonder, well, what, are the, what were the signs going on around the dinner table? Maybe the guests were staring at their feet. Maybe, uh, maybe Simon was shuffling in his seat. Or maybe he was clearing his throat. <clears> throat> constantly, Um, or maybe he was glaring at the woman. Whatever were the signs or lack of signs, um, Jesus was able to see right through it into Simon's heart. And he can see that it wasn't good, or at least that it was misguided, or at least that it was not in the right place, or at least that it wasn't able to see clearly the humanity of another who is clearly in need, or even his own need for that matter. Consistently in the Bible, Jesus knows what people are thinking. He knows, he knows your thoughts. He knows, he knows your thought. Nobody else knows your thoughts, but Jesus knows your thoughts. So Simon has a pride issue. And the pride that we saw in the beginning, kind of snubbing Jesus, is now taking its fever pitch uh, in his own heart as he um, sort of accuses this woman. And we can clearly see that this man is looking at the woman and instead of having compassion for her or concern of any kind or wondering why she's crying or simply grateful that she would even come and talk to a teacher of the law, all he can see is her sin and 
her weakness and that she's out of line. And so we catch a glimpse of a problem, an issue, a sin of this man, Simon, who thinks he's so righteous. And after this brief exchange where Simon, um, where Jesus reads Simon's mind and, and Jesus says, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, okay, then teacher, tell me what you want to say to me. Jesus tells this brief little parable, just two verses. Imagine there's a lender and, and he's, um, he's got two people who owe him money. One owes him $50,000, the other owes him $5,000. And the lender cancels both of the debts. Which one do you think is going to be more grateful and and uh, more, you know, in love with the lender. Um, and, uh, and Simon says, well, obviously the one who had more debt forgiven. And you just want, the reader wants Jesus to follow up on that statement by saying, should the $5,000 guy be upset? Or should he be grateful that his debt was canceled regardless of the size of the other guy's debt? Does he even realize that he also has a sizable debt of his own? Was it to you if God wants to dole out his grace as recklessly as the woman expresses her love and abandon for Jesus? And do you know of your own need for God's grace? And then Jesus turns to Simon and says, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? This whole time, you didn't show hospitality to me. By the way, Jesus wasn't bothered by this until Simon judged the woman. But you didn't show any hospitality to me. No water, no kiss, no anointing oil. But this one who you've mislabeled, misnamed, is actually the example of the kind of authenticity that I'm looking for. And then he ends this scene by granting her forgiveness, announcing her forgiveness, while also mentioning to Simon and perhaps the other guests around the table that if you don't recognize your own need for forgiveness, you have very little capacity to love. I'll just say that again because that's the big idea from this story. If you don't recognize your own need for forgiveness, you have very little capacity to love someone else. And then he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Do you see this woman? That was the question that Jesus asked him. This whole story is about a crisis of perception. It's about learning to see rightly. And Simon's first problem is his inability to see this woman beneath the, the label sinner. So I just want to pause for a moment and ask if you've ever been Simon the Pharisee in your life. Have you ever found yourself feeling morally superior or religiously superior to someone else? Have you ever judged someone else, looked at their outward appearance and judged them instead of looking at their heart? Or maybe you know the Bible better than someone else and you judge them for thinking that you know the will of God better than they do. Have you ever assumed the worst about someone instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt? Have you ever talked about somebody behind their back, gossiping, backbiting? The reality is there isn't a person in this room who hasn't been Simon the Pharisee at one point or another in each of our lives. I have been and you have been. We've all done this. It's so easy to do. And yet we learn in this story that this is not how God made us to be. Instead, we're to look at the other person and we're to see them as a human being. And so at this supper table, we're all Simon the Pharisee at various points in our lives. Simon lives in every one of us. 
not just at an individual level, but also at a congregational level. Entire churches can be Simon the Pharisee. And so in this story, we're also asking the question, what kind of church will we be? Will we be like the Rabbi Simon or will we be like the Rabbi Jesus? How will we see people who walk in our doors who may be different from us? And so that's the first lesson I think that we're meant to learn from this story. We're meant to see ourselves as Simon. But I also think we're meant to see ourselves as this sinful woman as well. Again, Luke doesn't tell us what kind of sin she committed. Doesn't matter. It's not the point. She's the stand-in. She's the archetype for every one of us. And her sin wasn't who she was. It was what she did. And this story reminds us of the heart of Jesus. And we look at Jesus to know what God is like. And who God loves and accepts and welcomes. And we're all, we're all like this woman in some ways. Our sins may not be as obvious, but sometimes they are. And what I know about every one of us is we all have things in our closets. As a pastor, I sometimes have someone come and, and meet with me and they say, I, I need to share something with you that I'm too ashamed to talk to anybody else about, not even my spouse. Um, nobody knows about this. Is it possible that Jesus would forgive even me? And maybe you don't have anything in your closet that is so bad that you wouldn't tell anybody else, but maybe you would. Um, but there are, we all have places in our lives, places where we've fallen short and missed the mark, every single one of us. And so this woman represents us as well. And she's helping us to see the love of Christ for us and his forgiveness and grace. When I was in college, I had a, um, one of my best friends still to this day, his name is John Eshelman, and uh, we, he, I know there's an Eshelman family in our congregation, no relation, but he was not only my best friend, he was also my doppelganger, and so we look a lot alike, and people would oftentimes confuse the two of us. Usually they would, they would mistake me for him because he was two years older than me and a lot more popular in college than I was. And so that meant that several times a week, somebody would inevitably say, uh, and his nickname was Esh, so he would go by Esh. Somebody would say, hey, Esh. And then I would have to like correct them and say, I'm not Esh, you know. And, and then they would say, oh, are you related to him? And like, no, but he is my friend. And yada, oh, haven't you looked, have you looked alike for a long time? I don't know, we've only known each other. And it just gets old after a while. So you just start ignoring it, right? And, and until one day, um, I was walking and someone from about 20 yards behind me yelled, hey, Esh. And I'm thinking, oh, here we go again. I'm just going to put my head down and keep walking. And then they said it a second time, head down, walking, ignore. They will stop. A third time. And then the fourth time I was fed up by it and I turned around and I yelled, I'm not Esh. And the person goes, Ugh, and scurried off really quick. <laughs> In a much more profound way, many of us live in a world where we are misseen, misnamed, misresponded to. And the God of the Bible is a God who sees beneath any category, any name, any label, any identity, any title to who you really are as the beloved child who is created in his image, who also has participated in and experienced the brokenness of this world. Jesus never makes the mistake of misperception. He looks at you and he sees you. He knows exactly who you are. He knows your heart. He knows your desire to do good. He knows your insecurities, your feelings of guilt, 
and he knows who's hurt you, and he knows the pressures that the world puts on you and how hard that can be from time to time. He sees and he knows all of it so much more clearly than we do ourselves, and he loves us beyond any and all of it. And that leads to the third of these characters today, and that's Jesus. And as we look at the story, we just see two rabbis. There's the woman, she doesn't know that Jesus is the divine son of God. She just knows that there's this rabbi Jesus and there's this rabbi Simon. And they paint two very different pictures of what it means to be religious and, and what God uh, thinks about and how God looks at people. And so we look at Jesus and we see that he goes to eat at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Three times he eats at the Pharisee's homes, the homes of his critics. And it's not just that he was looking for people who were um, down and out and on the margins of society, though that was true as well. He also went and ate at the Pharisee's homes. He's willing to hang out with them, break bread with them, and to be their companions, even though he knows that in their hearts they suffer from the worst kind of sin, which is spiritual pride. But he's going to eat with them. And even si when Simon snubs him, he still sits down to eat. Jesus is trying to say, do you see, Simon, your own brokenness? But he loves Simon too. I'm so grateful for that because that means that he loves me and he loves you as well. He sees past all of it and all the other issues that we have and forgives us, washes us clean, wants to eat with us, and hopes to convert us to be like him. Well, the story reminds us that nobody is invisible to God. Nobody is misseen. But religious people are either going to be like Simon the Pharisee or like Jesus, the Savior of the world. Churches will either look like Jesus or they'll look like Simon. And I hope and pray that we will continue to be the kind of church where no one is misnamed and no one is misseen. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for his great love who can see beyond and through everything, all of the masks that we put on, um, all of the, uh, the, the sins that we wear on our sleeves. Lord, we're all in need. And so thank you for loving us. Thank you for receiving us. Thank you for welcoming us to your table. We pray that you'll be at our tables during this season of Lent, that we might be attentive uh, to your presence with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.